Clear Ballot from the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Stooley. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, this Monday edition of Fangraphs Audio, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And in what follows, as he does every week, really, uh, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. And uh, of note, this week there have not been uh, there's not been much in the way of signings. Uh, there's been little in the way of trades or other manner of transactions, player transactions. However, what has occurred is that the uh, Major League Baseball, I suppose by way of the Sloan Analytics Conference, has announced or it has been announced on their behalf, or maybe it's been leaked. I don't know how it's been out. There's a presentation of some sort. It's not a leak, actually. It's not a leak. No, there was a real presentation to the effect that Major League Baseball Advanced Media is currently working on a technology which would make fielding data available, fielding data of some sort, you know, whether it's available to the public at large, to teams exclusively, or for Major League Baseball's own use. This has yet to be determined. To that point, though, Dave Cameron has some ideas about the precise nature of the data that might be available, how it might be best used uh, for analytics, and furthermore, and perhaps uh, of the most interest to the listener, he speculates on uh, precisely how this sort of information might be disseminated to uh, the armchair analysts of the world. That is it. That is, is actually, that, that takes up, honestly, that consumes about 40 minutes of the conversation that follows, and it's distressingly compelling, is, is what you will be distressed by it, but also compelled. So there you are. That's both things simultaneously. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. sound alert i am alert yeah well yeah. More, i mean sometimes sometimes you're not entirely sometimes when we speak you have never spoken to another person that day that's still true today still true but you sound yeah. did you clear your throat or something it sounded uh, very you sound with it um i i don't know i don't know what to tell you i think i'm always with it i i reject the premise that i am ever not with it <laughs> okay all right you can reject the premise that's fine yeah yeah you're free to do that I, I do so. Yeah. Hey, it's good to talk to you. You do. You know what's happened in the last week? Uh, well, Russia has invaded Ukraine? Yeah, okay, first, first of all, that's, that sounds crazy to me. I mean, I know, I heard that that happened. I saw that that happened, and that's, that's, is that crazy? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah. I mean, not that, not that I am any kind of, uh, European political expert, but, uh, a little weird. Yeah. Seems like it might be a little crazy. Um, yeah. That's not exactly what I was talking about, though. Okay. Uh, well, it was the correct answer to your question. It is. This has happened. And like a lot of things have happened. But relative to uh, this uh, small podcast we in which we both participate, uh, the uh, spring training starting. Well, spring training started like weeks spring, ago. Spring training baseball games. Oh, right. The Cactus League and Grapefruit League. Grape, yes, right. That's what I mean. Yeah. Baseball games that you can watch. Uh, via MLB TV. I don't know if it's available on um, what do they call those devices? Uh, what do they get? Something devices, affiliated devices, connected connected devices is what I mean. The, I'm right. I think it's just the, the computer, right? I don't think it's available. I don't think it's available on your uh, PS3, for example. Or you? What do you? You watch the Roku or Apple TV? Uh, no, I have a PS3 and a Roku. Okay, but the yeah. Roku. I remember you wrote a, P, a piece on it. Roku starts up very quickly. 
It does start up much faster than the PS3, for sure. Okay, right. Yeah. And you, do, do you, you don't use your PS3 for video games or anything, do you? No, no. It, I basically bought it a couple of years ago because I wanted something that was, like, relatively inexpensive that would allow me to connect to the MLB TV and also be a DVD player or Blu-ray player, mm-hmm. and it was cheaper than building my own. Building – you mean you could – you know how to build a Blu-ray player? Well, you can build a what they call an HTPC. It's like a home theater. Like you build a computer that is designed to connect to your television, oh. and you know you just put a like a Blu-ray drive inside of one. Oh. that's a thing. It's a, it's a real thing. There's like a lot of people out there who build their own home theater PCs because they want to be able to oh. uh, maybe illegally download things to their computer and then watch them on their TV. I don't know anything about that, but um, yeah. H. Uh... Do you do do you use Roku for anything else? Not really. Uh, we do. My wife and I do some Amazon streaming because we don't have uh, cable, mm-hmm. so we uh, we will watch some shows on Amazon okay. uh, through our streaming devices. Now, if you yeah, you got the streaming there. If you had like a Hulu, could you use Hulu on that? You, you can. Uh, I have used Hulu and decided it is terrible. I, the Hulu, like so, Amazon and Netflix, you know, they charge you some monthly fee and then you get a good amount of co- content with no advertisements. Hulu, they charge you almost the same monthly fee and still give you ads. I, I am uh, unaware of why I would pay for Hulu. I mean, it, they have some current run TV shows that Netflix and Amazon don't, but I mean, I can right. wait you know, a couple of years for the shows to get on Amazon and just be behind everybody uh, and not have to watch super annoying advertisements. So if a person wanted to watch, like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, though, which is a new television program. Right. If you wanted to watch that, in, with the, if you you if you only had a Roku, would you, would you need to subscribe to Hulu to do that? I believe so. And I think well, that's a Fox show, right? I believe, yeah, I believe some yeah. Fox may not. I, mean, I don't subscribe to Hulu, so I can't guarantee this. But I, I remember Fox not being part of the Hulu thing or they not even participate. Their, right, or they don't put their shows on Hulu. So, so how would you watch it then? Um, I I believe you'd have to have a, like own a TV with a oh, an antenna my. or some kind of cable outlet, and then maybe a DVR. What is this? What is this? The nineties? Uh, I know. What is this? Two thousand ten. I will say, so my wife and I bought a, a, a an antenna for uh, our TV after not having any way to watch live TV mm-hmm. uh, so that we could watch the Winter Olympics. And so now we have, you know, three channels. We get ABC, CBS, and Fox, and then, like, nine PBS stations. Uh, and, it, you know, it's kind of nice to be able to, like, if the world is ending, realize I could turn on my TV and get, like, you know, some local news who's like, the, the aliens are here, run for the hills. Yeah. Well, actually, I believe that was the, um, um, when the United States switched to digital was like two, three, four years ago now. Yeah, maybe longer, somewhere in there. Yeah, right. Uh, I believe that was, that was the justification behind the, uh, the subsidies that were being offered for digital, um, digital accounts or whatever. Right. Digital, digital boxes. Right. Well, um, we don't, still don't have a digital box. We just bought a little, uh, paper thin antenna. And that does it? It's uh, yeah, it's actually pretty neat. It's like uh it basically looks like a piece of cardboard paper and it comes with a connection and you hook it up and then tape it to your wall and, and it gets channels. Okay. Alright. But no baseball that way. Uh no. Well it, so that will get me the World Series, which has always been uh, a bit of a consternation. Every October I have to sign up for cable in order to watch uh, the World Series in the playoffs because they're on cable and I don't have cable. 
this way, now at least I'll get the World Series without signing up for cable. So now I might only have to sign up for cable for two weeks. Because the World Series is on Fox. It is on Fox, yes. And just Fox. Just Fox, yes. Okay. Exclusively right. on Fox. But the Division Series and League Championship Series are also on TBS, and there's no way to get those with antenna. Now, wait, if I'm not mistaken, this year the rules have changed a little bit for MLB.tv. Isn't that right? Uh, yes, I believe the Fox Saturday blackouts are ending. Okay, yeah, that's that's what I heard. I, I this the the fine print at the when you sign up for MLB TV, it's still it's quite long. Yes, it's quite long. But um, when I checked it, I checked it. I think before like the turnover to essentially the 2014 season. But so maybe three weeks ago, I checked it, and it's still indicated in the fine print that f- the Fox Saturday games were an issue, but uh, perhaps they hadn't uh, updated it. Yeah, I also vaguely remember that maybe this doesn't kick in this season. Maybe it's 2015. I don't know. We should ask Wendy Thurm. Have Wendy on the podcast. She will tell you the right answer. Okay, well, can we command her? Can you command her as a managing editor to, to write that piece? I could. She's, uh, I think, you know, a spunky girl. She might she might r- refuse my uh, order, so maybe I'll just make a suggestion. Can you politely request? I, I can lean in her direction and say, you should do a podcast with Carson, and she'll say, how much are you paying me? Yeah, yeah. Not enough. Yeah, it's certainly. We're not paying anyone enough to do podcasts okay. with you. Hey, we actually, we are talking, look at this, flawless transition opportunity. Uh, we're talking about uh, MLB Advanced Media to some degree ah, right now. Yes, is that we not, are. Is that not kind true? Of. Kind uh, of. So it's, it's, this is a stretch, but go ahead. But, um... Real things are happening. It compelled you to to wake from your weekend stupor and actually do a post. Uh, well, I was already awake. I I don't know if I would consider right. my weekends a stupor. Right. But, uh, okay, but yeah. fine. Now, my point being that you wrote a post this weekend, and it was generally I think it was announced during this during the Sloan uh, conference. Yes, yeah, Saturday at like noonish, uh, MLB Advanced Media basically announced that they're creating the data system uh, that we've been dreaming of for years. And that data system involves, uh, in particular, a lot of things having to do with fielding, I believe. Yeah. So basically, I mean, you know, for the last five years since PitchFX uh, or since SportVision started talking about uh, PitchFX, HitFX, and FieldFX as, you know, uh, possibilities of tracking everything that happens on the field, we've been uh, excited about the possibility of a system that uh, can kind of integrate all these things so pitch velocity batted ball angle launch velocity off the bat uh you know distance of a runner uh traveled um you know for a fielder his initial start time his initial position how how much ground he covered in order to get to the ball uh, all these things together to kind of get an idea of how everyone performed on a certain play that's never really happened. So, uh, Sport Vision has, has created PitchFX and HitFX, and then they have some other ancillary products, but FieldFX has never become a reality. Um, it seems like Major League Baseball Advanced Media has maybe gotten tired of Sport Vision, uh, not creating this system and decided just to do it themselves. So they have hired, uh, two competitors, uh, the TrackMan system, which is a radar-based technology, and then the Higo group, which is a European group that uh, does video tracking, and they have basically hired these two companies to create a fully immersible um, kind of tracking system that covers the entire play. Uh, and MLB is going to institute this themselves uh, starting in three parks this year and then hopefully all 30 next year um, and is 
it seems to be getting in the tracking system themselves rather than just licensing uh, Sport Vision's data. Right. Okay. So, all right. So, first things first. Like, how, what does this do to the relationship then between MLB and Sport Vision, and more importantly, for our interest, uh, what does it do to pitch FX? So we don't know really. So Sport Vision had no. Um, they were not part of the presentation, and they were not mentioned during the presentation, uh, which you'd think if, if MLB had plans to include them in this, they would have gotten some kind of reference, especially because they're already an established technology that's working in all 30 parks. Uh, from what I've read online, there were uh, Corey Schwartz, who's one of the heads of the MLB Advanced Media, uh, was asked specifically about uh, pitch effects, and he said it will still be in effect in 2014. They're not going to you know, take the system down this year, uh, especially because they're only rolling out their new tracking system in three parks. So um, the PitchFX Sport Vision cameras will remain in place for 2014, and then for 2015 and beyond, it's to be determined, which is almost always the way of saying uh, they're not going to be around. So it would seem uh, like the logical conclusion that uh, 2014 will be the end of the FX products in Major League Baseball. Okay, and what does that mean for uh, nerds, who are sitting at their homes hoping to use that data? Yeah, I mean, so this is kind of the open question, is we don't know what Major League Baseball is going to do with their own data stream. In their announcement, in their presentation, they said that they were going to make this data available in some way to both teams and fans. But that does not mean they're going to make the same data stream available to teams and fans, and they almost certainly aren't going to. Uh, so they, there's an open question of what the public is going to receive from this new data stream, uh, I think there, this has the chance to be really great for the public or kind of terrible, to be honest. Like, depending on which way MLB goes, uh, you know, pitch effects has always been publicly available, um, but hit effects never was, and field effects certainly wasn't going to be. Uh, it is possible that MLB decides to um, release some of this information uh, and, and give us more than what we would have gotten under the FX model. It is also possible they decide to pull back, and even the what used to be considered pitch effects data, the pitch type data, the velocity data, the location data, that stuff gets pulled out of the um, publicly available domain, and then we simply have something like a portal on MLB.com that has summary data, but maybe not pitch by pitch location data. Um, I think you know there's a chance that MLB Advanced Media uses this as a revenue resource. Perhaps they try and sell the data or license the data. Uh, perhaps they build their own statistical portal uh, around this data. I mean, there's a, a lot of ways this could go, and I think we don't have the answers for what MLE is going to do quite yet. Do we, so uh, if I'm not mistaken, when PitchFX originally became available, it was almost a mistake. It was a mistake, yes. Right. So, I mean, just briefly, what, what were the, the what was the situation that so, caused So, that? basically, uh, the PitchFX system was integrated into the game day uh, app that you can access through MLB.com. And uh, that app or that kind of code uh, has an XML file attached online. So, basically, XML is a, a language. And so the uh, location data that kind of controls where the the pitches plotted on the strike zone that you see in the game day app or the uh, velocity and all these, all these data points that go into generating graphics were available in the XML file and people figured out where the XML file was and how to manipulate it. And the fact that there was a predictable string for every game and uh, they found a directory where you could go in and you could find all the uh, XML files for each day. And uh, so this was 2007, 2008 or so uh, people figured out how to pull the data 
and uh, MLB never stopped them, essentially. And so uh, it certainly led to a rise of analytics and a rise of, of people using this technology and testing it testing it out for MLB, and I think, you know, it certainly helped Major League Baseball refine some of their processes, and um, it turned out to be a win-win, but it does not necessarily mean that MLB is going to do that again. What are the, what are the costs versus the benefits for MLB, uh, and maybe for these, sort of the the related companies, you know, whether it's SportVision or whether it's TrackMan, etc.? What are the costs versus the benefits of making that sort of thing available to the public? Because it seems like, a, I mean, at least for for the enjoyment of a, of a reader like myself, which I was um, before I was a, an employee of Fangraphs, um, the the enjoyment is considerable. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if I don't th- I don't know if MLB cares about me though. So I think they do. I think uh, the fact that MLB is owning this, I think, is actually a positive. I think the fact that this is no longer a license agreement with a third company uh, that is a for-profit, you know, certainly SportVision was in this to make money. Uh, not that MLB is not, but, I mean, SportVision had essentially no incentive to release any of this publicly because they needed to pay for their uh, R&D costs, their implementation costs, their structural costs. Uh, their business model was to... Uh, sell a, a premium service to each major league franchise and extract as much money from those teams as they could and making any of that information public was going to hurt their ability to sell data to the team. So uh, I, I think with pretty high confidence we could have said we would have never or not for any time soon gotten field effects data from SportVision released publicly. That just wouldn't have happened. The fact that MLB is buying this data, MLB is not, not reliant on profits from data sales to uh, even broadcasters or teams or, or I mean uh, or or fans for revenue, MLB is swimming in money. And if they wanted to treat this data as a kind of branding technique and a way to get generate more interest in in their sport and a way to um, kind of draw fans into you know the MLB.com world, they can do that. And uh, I think they have the ability to say, you know, this is a loss leader for us. We're just going to create this data. We're going to pay for the collection of it. Uh, and then we're going to release some amount of it, probably not all of it. I would, I would be stunned if we got um, even anywhere close to what the teams are going to get from this. But, it, you know, if we get some amount of this data, um, I think that they could say, you know what, we're just going to consider this um uh, a cost of advertising, essentially. And I think there's also something to the um, development of future analysts. So I think one of the things we've seen over the last few years is the people who really did groundbreaking work with the pitch effects data um, are now fairly prominent members of front offices. I think if you think back to the guys who really started working with this data, um, Mike Bast and Josh Kalk, all those guys got hired by major league teams. And then anyone who came along who showed any proficiency in kind of advancing the understanding of what you could do with this data, um, you know, guys like Jeremy Greenhouse, and uh, they've all been hired by major league teams as well. So um, there's certainly been a, a wave of new guys who have, taken this data and shown teams what they could do with it and also at the same time identified themselves as valuable front office members uh, and they now work for major league teams. And so um, I think there is some value to major league baseball to have enough of this information in the public sphere so that uh, talented individuals who want to work at major league front office can, can use it in the public setting in order to kind of self-select themselves as candidates uh, to be hired by, by organizations. Uh, for for people who uh, majored in the humanities in college, uh, could you just briefly define the loss leader? 
uh, loss leader. So basically, uh, think, so when I worked at Circuit City when I was like 18 and just graduated <laughs> from high school, so people will remember Circuit City as a, uh, oh yeah, that's not a thing anymore, right? If it, no, Circuit City's gone. Yeah, dead, dead in the water. They were a Best Buy competitor. Um, and so Circuit City, when I worked there, we were, uh, on commission sales and, uh, it was an interesting, interesting job. Uh, but televisions for us, like low-end televisions were a loss leader. So one of the best perks of, um, working at Circuit City is you got to buy everything at store cost. Like, so, you know, those printer cables that they desperately tried to sell you for $30, I could buy for two because that's what it cost the store to buy them. Our employee discount was the store's cost to purchase. If I wanted to buy that $100 TV that we had as, like, the low-end television, it cost me 110 because the store paid more to, to, to buy it than they did to sell it uh, because they found value in attracting someone to come into the store um, to buy some low-end TV, thinking they would buy other things there and there would be a long-time customer appreciation and they'd make up more money in the future than they lost selling them uh, a TV for less than what they buy. So um, essentially a loss leader is a product that a retailer sells for less than it costs them to pr- purchase it in an attempt to lure you into their store. Wait, is there also some benefit to to like advertising? If you you know, like you have a circular that comes out every Sunday, and right. you say, "Look, this TV is only a hundred, but then when you get the guy in the store, and it, it's definitely a guy, by the way, it's yeah. not, it's not a woman who's doing right. this, because once you get that guy in the store, you're like, look at this three hundred seventy five dollar television." Yeah, I mean, so the loss leader isn't necessarily designed to be a bait and switch where you're. You want them to come in to buy one thing and then end up buying something else. You actually, for a loss leader, you actually want them to buy that um, in order to think, hey, I got a good deal on this thing because they did get a good deal. They got it for less than the, the manufacturer charged the retailer. Uh, but you're buying customer loyalty and you're buying the hope that, you know, like with a printer, right? So when I worked at Circuit City, we would sell printers and, you know, a printer was $100. And then I would also sell you like $60 worth of ink and $30 worth of printer cables. And by the time you get out of the store, your cost is $220, which isn't so good a deal. Uh, the, the company has made a killing on cables and ink, uh, which is why they were basically giving the printers away. Yeah, the, the cables don't cost that much, huh? They they cost like next to nothing. Yeah. yeah I mean, if, if there's one thing that I can give some advice to anyone who's listening to this podcast, uh, a lot of people probably already know this. Do not ever buy a monster power cable. They are the most worthless, overpriced things in the history of mankind. Okay. All right. Well, good advice uh, right from the source there. Yeah, the source who worked at Circuit City in 1999. Yeah, that's right. There you go. That's one of the sources, I guess. Uh, um, so, uh, with, so with regard to Okay. The, the last I heard, and mm-hmm. I'm not as someone necessarily to whom all of uh, the, uh, the, this sort of information is, uh, you know, being uh, disseminated. The last I heard, though, field effects had the potential to become a thing. Uh, one curious aspect of it, though, was that it had roughly like a billion lines of data uh, for every game or something, though. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but not much of an exaggeration. Yeah. And, and so, now, is the is the was the was it the quantity of data that made it a problem? So it's not just the quantity. So the quantity of data is going to be an issue with both, or would have been an issue with FieldX, and will be an issue with this new data stream, whatever MLB ends up calling it, uh, some kind of tr- player tracking system. I think is what the terms they were using. Um, so that's certainly an issue. I think with FieldX, the larger issue is that um, it's essentially. Uh, mo- you require multiple technologies to do this, right? So Alan Nathan, uh, I think on, on either Twitter or on Tango's blog or somewhere, uh, so this weekend Alan Nathan, who's a 
physicist and, and one of the leading experts in this kind of field, um, made a comment that uh, you essentially need radar tracking or or camera tracking like Sport Vision does to track the um, flight of the ball, the velocity, the spin angle, all the things that we know from the from the pitcher to the batter and then ball off bat into the air. But you don't really want radar or um, this kind of camera setup that Sport Vision was using to track the players all across the field. You want video. So what MLB has done is essentially um, combine data from two different technologies. The TrackMan is a radar-based system that's going to track the ball out of the pitcher's hand and off the bat. And then the Hego Group, which is the uh, European company that they announced as a partner on this, uh, is doing and has done in Europe um, kind of video player tracking. And so it's a, a combination of two different technologies, sport vision, you know, not that I have intimate knowledge of, of all the details, but from what I understand, never quite got the video tracking off the ground uh, to a level that was um, scalable and, and and would succeed in all 30 parks. So they they tested and they tried, and it never quite got to where it needed to be. Okay, all right. Now, uh, with regard to the video that was released, and this is sort of our main exposure to it, and we sort of we, we see it as something that is – um, integrated into a broadcast, right? Or yes. how it might look integrated into a broadcast, a, a, a sort of sample of that. Um, d- uh, I, you know, I'm looking at like first, uh, this is Jason Hayward, right? His first step, um, his top speed, his acceleration. First of all, it appears as though this, this, um, this ball that he catches, he's actually not much further from it than Reed Johnson. And yet, uh, he gets to it a lot more quickly than Reed Johnson does. Is that, is that surprising? Uh, not really. I don't think Reed Johnson is known as a defensive wizard. But so, so I guess my question is like, with the sort of things we see here, how do we, what do we view as like the most, what are the most, what's the most important data we could have to begin, um, uh, providing, uh, a different kind of, uh, fielding analytic? Yeah. So there's, I think there's a, there's a number of things that this technology Assuming it works, assuming it is accessible in some way where, um, you know, analysts uh, will be able to get their hands on it and play with it and make some kinds of conclusions about the data and not just have some kind of summary level overview. Um, I think so the, the keys that you really want to know are initial positioning. Um, that's actually a pretty big deal is where the player was on the field at the time of contact and his reaction time, right? So how long did it take him to get moving in that general direction? Um, and then, you know, I think the distance traveled is certainly going to be helpful. Uh, but along that lines, you know, so the MLB also in, uh, announced what they were calling route efficiency, where they basically draw a straight line from the fielder to the point of uh, the catch and wonder how closely he, did he adhere to that straight line or did he run in some kind of circular pattern. Um, so distance to the ball is absolutely going to have to be uh, kind of coupled with route efficiency because uh, if you just say, oh, well, this guy only had to travel, you know, six feet, uh, it wasn't actually that, that you know, good of a defensive play, uh, but the only way he could travel that six feet in that amount of time was to take 100% route efficiency. That's probably a pretty incredible play um, considering that he made, like, the most direct read to the ball or maybe a guy who traveled 12 feet but had 90% route efficiency, uh, had more time while the ball was in the air, and was able to wander around and take a bad read and uh, simply made an easier play. So distance traveled, I think, is going to have to be uh, one variable of many that is looked at uh, when trying to decide whether a player 
uh, made a catch that wouldn't have been made by another player. And I think the um, end result of all of this is still going to want to turn it into some kind of UZR, DRS type system, certainly with better inputs than what we have now. But I think we're not going to want to talk about uh, a player's fielding value in distance traveled and route efficiency. Like, I could be wrong, but I'm guessing in five years we're still going to want to talk about players in terms of number of runs and wins. And these inputs are certainly going to make for better runs and wins estimators. Um, but I don't think we're going to want to change our entire lexicon and say, uh, let's discuss um, the route efficiency of Jason Hayward versus Reed Johnson. I think we're just going to say Jason Hayward is 10 runs better defensively in the outfield than Reed Johnson, and now we're much more confident in that analysis than we were five years ago. Right, and and well, that would require still establishing baselines, then, right? Absolutely, yes. So, and and I guess the the question then becomes: once you have the data, and then once you're able to have it for every fielder, is is to establish what what those baselines are. Yes, and I think this is one of those things that I'm going to have to, or we're going to have to exercise a little bit of caution. Is I think when this new system. Uh, goes live and is, is covering all, every game, every play, uh, in Major League Baseball. And as, let's assume that there is some level of access to at least high level summary data, uh, somewhere on MLB.com or on some, you know, licensed on fan graphs or something. Let's assume the public has some access to some of this data. Uh, what we're going to be dealing with are, you know, initially months, weeks, uh, and even, you know, a full year worth of data, we have absolutely no idea how much to regress this, right? So, like, regression to the mean is still going to be a very large uh, thing hanging over our heads where, we, you know, these these stats might stabilize much quicker um, than, you know, ground ball, fly ball ratio or kind of the kinds of batted ball uh, data we have now. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean we don't need to regress them at all. I mean, so the point of, like, no regression is still going to be a pretty large sample size, and we're not going to have any concept of what that regression point is uh, until we have a, a larger time frame with the data. And so, you know, in year one, uh, I think we're going to have to be very careful to not say, okay, at the end of May, um, you know, this player is by far the best defensive player based on, you know, reaction time, uh, distance covered, um, you know, route efficiency, these kinds of metrics. Uh, therefore, he's the best defensive player. Maybe he just had the best defensive six weeks. We don't know, and and how much we're going to need to regress that data, and how much it's going to fluctuate year to year. We're not going to know until we have multiple years of data. Well, I, uh, of course, um, it's not. It's a, it's an <coughs> adage in baseball that um, that speed. What is it? Speed. Uh, speed doesn't. Never slumps. Speed never slumps, but speed does slump because it, it, if you are a fast person. And then you have maybe, uh, you know, like a nag, like a minor ankle injury or something with your, you know, with your, your hammy. You have a hammy problem. Then one assumes that you're not as fast. And I assume that, uh, um, um, that much like that being the case, that this is something that can happen with fielders too. Yeah. I think the, so the concept behind speed never slumping is, um, actually a fairly sound one in that, uh, you either are fast or slow, and there's almost no way to fluke into being fast. Like, Adam Dunn will never accidentally run a 4-4-40. Four, four, like, that's, <laughs> he just can't do it. He can't be like, well, wow. And, you know, uh, you know, Juan Pierre could theoretically, in a, you know, some kind of world, hit a 450-foot home run. Like, in a, you know, maybe he's playing in Colorado and he gets an 82-mile or meatball down the middle and he 
takes an uppercut swing and it hits it just right. Like, you know, home run distance, that can fluctuate pretty wildly. Speed, not not so much. Uh, but there absolutely can be outside variables that can affect the performance of your speed, right? So when you say speed never slumps, it's it's true at some level that you're either fast or you're either slow, but that doesn't mean your stolen base rate is not going to fluctuate based on other variables. Uh, it doesn't mean that your first step isn't going to fluctuate based on other variables. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're not going to show up to the park hungover one day and not be able to see the ball because there's four of them coming at you and you don't know which way to run. Like, uh, there are a lot of things that affect defensive performance besides just speed. So when we say, like, speed never slumps or when people say that, uh, that may be true, but we can't make the jump to say, since speed never slumps, things that are speed-based also never slump. That's not true. Is it, it? This is similar with with the pitcher fastball velocity, right? Because because um, I think like you know that uh, Tommy Malone, right? Tommy yeah. Malone's not going to throw 100 miles per hour, right. but but guys who do throw 100 miles per hour, given the circumstances of a particular day, may not throw 100 miles per hour every day. Right, and just because we know that a 100-mile-an-hour fastball gets more strikeouts than an 82-mile-an-hour fastball doesn't mean that, you know, a guy with an 82-mile-an-hour fastball can't have a pretty wide range in his strikeouts per game. You know, like, uh, he could have a high strikeout game and a low strikeout game. It doesn't, it's not consistent just based on the fact that his fastball generally won't get swings and misses. And he has another question, because, because this is, uh, we're obviously at an interesting place right now when we, when we talk about this sort of data. We're, we're an interesting place, um, where we're, we're scouting information and sort of objective analysis uh, become one and the same thing. And that's what's exciting about pitch effects, right, um, is that we can start to, to look at how those are related, how how inputs and, and outputs are, are related. Um, it, it, there's still the issue, though, because we're looking at – we're talking about this, like, for example, with, with regard to um, Jason Hayward making an excellent catch – I'm curious as to how like other elements are still still ought to be judged, like for example uh, throwing, or like for example and maybe more importantly how we um, how we talk about a player's hands, right? I mean, I remember you know B.J. Upton at one point was a short well, basically every talented young yeah. major leaguer <laughs> was at one point a shortstop prospect, but B.J. Upton actually played shortstop in the major leagues um, at one point. Very early on in his career, and then he got moved to center field because some some combination of of hands and throwing. And I mean, were we ever going to have a, a way to analyze those things objectively? Yeah, I think you're you're almost going to have to do like a what's left over calculation, right? So like if we know that uh, say there's an outfielder who covers uh, a lot of ground in a little bit of time, so when we have access to this data, we can say that. Um, you know, we'll just use Craig Gentry as an example, even though Craig Gentry actually is an excellent defensive outfielder. Say Craig Gentry can run 20 feet in two seconds. And uh, I mean, I have no idea if that's physically possible, but let's just say he could. Um, and his initial reaction time is best in the league. Uh, and so based on those two factors, we would think that Craig Gentry should catch all kinds of balls and he should be like the league leading defender, uh, in, in Major League Baseball. But then when we actually look at it and we look at the number of, of plays he's making and the number of, uh, you know, balls he's turning into outs, say he's middle of the pack. If we say, you know, your initial reaction time is amazing, your distance covered is fantastic, your route efficiency is very good, and your plays made conversion ratio is very bad, you must suck at catching the ball. Like <laughs> This is the only thing left. You cover ground fast, you get a good break, you take a good route, and then the ball still falls for a hit. You must just, you know, 
be scared of diving or uh, have lousy hands or, you know, there's something at the end when it comes to converting what you've already done into an actual out that you fail at. And so uh, we might not measure that thing directly as much as we might measure it indirectly as a leftover of not the things we're measuring. And kind of like we do this with um, fielding-dependent pitching right now, right? So we calculate uh, wins based on fielding-independent numbers, walks, strikeouts, and home runs. Uh, and then, you know, the difference between that and their runs allowed is essentially uh, their hits on balls in play and their sequencing. And then we can actually calculate the expected runs of their balls in play on their war uh, based on their BABIP. And we can say, okay, now let's factor that in. If they had a 260 BABIP, that should have been this many hits. These many hits have, you know, X number of run value. Let's add that in. Now you have FIP plus BABIP wins. What's left basically has to be sequencing. And so we can uh, measure sequencing runs, uh, what we call LOB wins on the site, um, by calculating four other things and then just uh, saying this is what's left over. Right, so so you could you would essentially be through process of elimination you'd be isolating the you know runs or wins gained from hands and uh, and arm by by being able to isolate what those things are not. Yes, exactly. Okay. You right. say here are all the things we're measuring. The only thing we're not measuring is this is this, this thing. So this is the value left. So if we're to summarize uh, this whole thing, I, if if I'm not mistaken, we'll say. It's exciting. Yeah. Uh, it's exciting to to think that this technology is available and will be more fully available in the future. And but the question remains uh, uh, for the uh, for the armchair analyst: uh, to what degree it will be made available to the public? Yeah, I mean, so I think like it's an interesting question for Major League Baseball what they're going to do. Uh, so I think a, a decent. Um, Comparison for this is the Major League Baseball Scouting Bureau. So in 1975, I believe, uh, the Major League Baseball decided that it was inefficient for all 30 teams to uh, do their own scouting reports from scratch and have absolutely no shared information and kind of no general uh, central database of, of prospect evaluation scouting reports for the draft. So they created um, a kind of a third-party system that would feed all the teams uh, the same information and kind of set a baseline of scouting reports. And certainly teams could still scout above and beyond that, but at least that way every team would know the basics of the top prospects for the next year's draft. And so the scouting bureau has been around for 40 years now. Every major league team still does their own scouting, but the scouting bureau still provides these services to all 30 teams and kind of provides a baseline. And then, you know, more recently in the last few years, uh, the scouting bureau reports have been re- released on MLB.com in the lead up to the draft. So if you go to MLB.com, like maybe a week or two before the draft, I'm not sure when they get put on there, but I've noticed that, you know, on the player profile, they're going to have the scouting report from the scouting bureau, uh, that is basically the same one that MLB teams get. Um, I think this model is interesting in that MLB's hopefully making the decision to centralize this data the same way they centralized the scouting report data 40 years ago and saying it's inefficient for every team to be building their own database, to be hiring their own uh, IT guys to manage these databases. Uh, it's inefficient for you all to be duplicating all this work and spending all this money on your own things and, and solving these basic problems of the data when we can centralize them all uh, have, you know, one team managing this data and then you guys can focus on analyzing the data instead of managing it and collecting it. Um, and if, if MLB goes that route and says, we're going to be the central hub of management of the data and all you have to do is analyze it, at that point, um, 
there's some possibility that MLB says, you know what, we're already managing and collecting this, you know, kind of not raw data, but, uh, you know, stream of information. Maybe we should give X percentage of it to the, to the fans as kind of a teaser or as, um, you know, a way to maintain interest, uh, which will still allow the teams to have access to more information. I don't think there's any way that we're going to get access to the same information the teams are, but, you know, maybe we'll get more than we would have previously under the old model. Okay. Yeah, you know, uh, you've definitely fulfilled your obligations here. Uh, we did not get to how, uh, it appears that the, the Seattle Mariners, your Seattle Mariners, Dave Cameron, uh, will be without Taiwan Walker and, uh, Hisashi Iwakuma to start well, the season. Yeah, probably just for a few weeks. These are not like major injuries. These are min- minor concerns that might shelve them until like early, mid-April to early May. So you still have the Mariners to win the World Series is what you're saying? Uh, yes, if the all other 29 teams die in plane crashes. No, I think the Astros, I mean the Astros, the Cubs probably. Uh, these are teams that would have to die in plane crashes for the Mariners to win the World Series, yes. You say you, you really think so? No, I mean I am uh, being hyperbolic. Yeah. Because, Do you think uh, they're the 30th best team in Major League Baseball? No, I think they're probably like the 18th or 19th or 20th best team in Major League Baseball. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. What would a team of all replacement players plus Robinson Cano be worth? I guess Robinson Cano and Felix Hernandez. Uh, probably about 56 wins somewhere in there. That's not very good. No. Um, Which, you know, the Mariners are heading in that direction. <laughs> not too far. Uh, they, have, they have some other good players. But, you, know, uh, Nick, you know, Nick Franklin he, would not have been a bad second baseman. He would not have been. This is one of my reasons why I don't love the Cano signing. I'm not a huge Nick Franklin fan, but Nick Franklin's probably an average Major League player next year. Right. Uh, or something close to it. Maybe a little below average, maybe a little above average. Uh, you know, they spent $240 million to replace an average player making the league minimum under team control for six years. Uh, with a guy on the wrong side of 30. Like, right. You know, that, that's, that's rough. Well, even this year, they're paying like, cause, he, cause what, Cano's getting 24 million? Yeah, I, I think the struct, the contract is basically flat. I don't yeah. think they backloaded it. So, and, and, and Franklin would be making like 500,000? Yeah. So, they're paying like 23 and a half million dollars for three wins, essentially. Right. Yeah, I mean, you can hopefully turn Nick Franklin into something else so that you're not getting zero from Nick Franklin, but they haven't been able to do that yet. I know, that's crazy. Isn't that kind of crazy? Does it, does a team not need a second baseman? There are a lot of teams that need second baseman and apparently are unwilling to make any moves. The Blue Jays badly the Blue Jays, need a second yeah. baseman. Ryan Goins is not going to be that not, team's not, second baseman. Not, well, he might be, but he shouldn't be. He's not going to uh, be a winning Blue Jays yeah, team. Right. Uh, the Yankees need a second baseman realistically. Like Brian Roberts, not, not the answer. Actually, no, I have something to say about what you're saying. And that you is, like Dean Anna a lot. Yeah, I think Dean Anna, I, dude, you, you need to calm your little face down because, uh, Dean Anna is going to be a good second baseman. I will say that last year a PCL MVP voter approached me and said, who would you vote for for PCL MVP? And I was like, well, this is not something I've ever considered. <laughs> and I looked through the data and I said, I don't know anything about this guy's defense, but Dean Anna looks pretty good. So I endorsed Dean Anna for 2013 PCL MVP. Uh, and I, I very, uh, not surprised that this is your kind of player. No, I, th- I mean, yeah, I, I'm not surprised he's my kind of player, but I think also the, uh, the sort of upgrade, I mean, if the Yankees had to give up anything of consequence, for Nick Franklin, I think that they might as well just 
tried Dean Anna out at second base for a while. They also actually they also still have Corbin Joseph after Corbin Joseph left as a minor league free agent and returned. He's all he's also on the team. Uh, another one of your guys. Yeah, although Joseph didn't really show. Um, I think he he must have been injured for part of last year because. I mean, he's uh, well. He was he was injured for like half the season, and his injuries might have affected him elsewhere too. But, so basically, what you're saying is, if a guy you like performs well, then that is proof that your concept works. If he performs badly, he must have been injured. Well, he really was. I mean, he really, he literally was out for half the year. Okay, but but you're also blaming that injury on why he didn't perform well. I'm saying you have a face that is a jerk, so that's what <laughs> makes you a jerk face. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good analysis, right? It's there. tautology and also yeah. correct. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. You're done. Yeah, um, I am done. You are done. You're done on many levels. That is, uh, thank you, Dave Cameron, though. Thank you. That was great stuff. Uh, we'll call this Dave Cameron FX, this, this edition of the. Well, so the thing is, this isn't FX, though. This is replacing FX. So uh, maybe call it Dave Cameron analyzes all player tracking. That sounds stalkerish. That sounds terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I'll think of something. I'll I'll, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll I'll conference with my brain and see what it says. Okay. Uh, but thank you. That has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>